Downloads of this show are available on Potomatic.com and the Potomatic mobile app. Listen, all you New Yorkers. Hello. I hope no one's eating dinner. Something like that. What's up, everybody? It's 10 o'clock on Monday night, which means it's time for the next best thing. Dear Jesus. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, and I'll be with you for the next two hours. Well, get ready. Don't go anywhere. We have a great, 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 great show lined up for you tonight. I can't even contain myself. But before we get to any of that, we'd like to kick the show off by doing what we always do, and that is review all of the great and the not-so-great things that have happened on... This Day in History. Today is October 30th, National Publicist Day and National Candy Corn Day. How have you been celebrating? I bet you've been eating candy corn with your publicist. (laughs) Okay, on this day in history, in 1735, John Adams, the second president of the United States, was born in Braintree, Massachusetts. On this day in 1938, Orson Welles' The War of the Worlds aired on CBS Radio. The belief that the realistic radio dramatization was a live news event about a Martian invasion caused panic among stupid listeners. On this day in 1945, the U.S. government announced the end of shoe rationing. What the hell was shoe rationing? And lastly, but surely not least, on this day in 2001, Michael Jordan returned to the NBA, not with the Chicago Bulls, but with the Washington Wizards after a three and a half year retirement. That's what happened on this day in history. And who knows, perhaps we'll make history right here tonight on Radio Free Brooklyn and be studied for years to come. But who are we kidding? Probably not. You're listening to the next best thing. Stay tuned. Oh, yeah. This is... My God, that must have been a ghost. Because after all, this isn't quite Halloween, but it is the Halloween episode of The Next Best Thing. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner. Keeping you company every Monday night from 10 until midnight, right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. I hope everyone is having a beautiful Monday. I hope everyone had a great Halloween weekend because this past weekend was, in fact, Halloween weekend. Last night, I went to a friend's Halloween party. This friend of mine has a Halloween party virtually every year. Thank God for him because if nobody celebrated Halloween, You know, you can go to these big parties thrown at bars and clubs and all that stuff where it's open to the public, but I don't, that's really not my scene any time of year. I don't, you know, call me crazy, but I really don't look at going to a place where you have to pay unbelievable prices for shitty drinks and where you don't know most people and you couldn't talk to them even if you did because the music is so loud that it completely kills conversation. I don't look at that as a great time. I just don't know. I'm a weird person in that regard and many others. But parties I love. And so if I didn't have if I didn't have personal Halloween parties to go to, I don't know what I would do. I'd probably just kill myself. But 
thank God I do. This friend has them every year. And last night was the party. Why it was on a Sunday, that I don't know. But who am I to complain? So we went. This was weird. Uh, I love this friend of mine, and I will never criticize him. And I won't do it now, but I'll just inform the public that this Halloween party had a theme. And it wasn't Halloween. What? Who does that? Again, love this friend. Never going to criticize him. Felt that was a huge pain in the ass. Because the theme should have just been Halloween. That way people can dress up as literally whatever they want to dress up as. Whatever they can afford to dress up as. Whatever crap they have laying around their apartments that they can put together. So as to dress up as something. But this had a theme. The theme was the woods. So... Not everyone did, but, you know, it'd be nice to follow that rule. And so what did I go as? I went as Paul Bunyan. Yes, and I have to say I looked damn good. Now, one other thing, though, and this was not intentional. A lot of people view Halloween as a time to basically be slutty. I view it as a time to be imaginative and creative. I I have to say I love Halloween. It really probably is my favorite holiday for the simple reason that It gives adults total freedom and the ability for one night or at least one weekend to become a kid again, to have an imagination, to play dress up, to get creative and, you know, really play and use your imagination. And, you know, some adults do that all the time. They're called freaks. Just kidding. They're called gamers and those people who live and go to Comic-Con and all that crap. They're into cosplay and they're into dressing up as stuff all the time. Fine. For all the rest of us, we have Halloween to do that. And I think it's an awesome opportunity. I think people who poo-poo it are just the worst. Seriously, you can never be too old for Halloween. The whole point of Halloween, in my opinion, is to forget about how old you are and to be a kid again. Use your imagination. Have some fun, you piece of sh**. Anywho, this party was great. I looked great. What I was gonna, the point I'm trying to make here is a lot of people don't necessarily see Halloween as I do, a chance to be a kid again, be fun, imaginative, creative. They see it as a time to be slutsville, to be a slut, to be slutty and, you know, skimpy. Fine. No big deal. That's fine. I wasn't really going for that look as Paul Bunyan. You know, lumberjacks are so sexy. But I will, I kind of ended up that way because. For my costume, I actually made these jean shorts, and in doing so, they were kind of, they're not, they were not skinny jeans. I can't, I don't wear skinny jeans. Uh, I literally cannot wear skinny jeans because my calves are too big. It's just crazy. But uh, I did make them, these were pretty slim jeans that I made them out of, and so when I cut them at the, you know, like a little above the knee, actually, I think I cut them twice. They were, I thought they were too long at first. The point is, As I was riding the train to my friend's house to gather with some people pregame and go to the party, they started ripping at the seams. And so I swear to God, by the time I was coming home from this party, they were ripped all the way up, like, to my... (laughs) I mean, luckily, it was still, you know, the inner seams were still intact. It was the outer seams. So it basically looked like I was wearing one of those those Native American flaps where you can see their entire leg from toe to waist and part of their ass cheeks, but not any of their balls or, you know, ding dong. So that's how I felt. And I uh, 
felt very exposed. But you know what? That's all right. Neither here nor there. And we're going to have a great show tonight celebrating Halloween, celebrating All Hallows' Eve, because this is All Hallows' Eve. This is All Hallows' Eve in the sense that it is the Eve of Halloween. From communion with the dead to pumpkins and pranks, Halloween is a patchwork holiday stitched together with cultural, religious, and occult traditions that span centuries. It all began with the Celts, a people whose culture had spread across Europe more than 2,000 years ago. October 31st was the day they celebrated the end of the harvest season in a festival called Sowen. That night also marked the Celtic New Year and was considered a time between years, a magical time when the ghost of the dead walked the earth. It was the time when the veil between death and life was supposed to be at its thinnest. On Samhain, the villagers gathered and lit huge bonfires to drive the dead back to the spirit world and keep them away from the living. But as the Catholic Church's influence grew in Europe, it frowned on the pagan rituals like Samhain. In the seventh century, the Vatican began to merge it with a church-sanctioned holiday. So November 1st was designated All Saints Day to honor martyrs and the deceased faithful. Both of these holidays had to do with the afterlife and about survival after death. It, it was a calculated move on the part of the church to bring more people into the fold. All Saints Day was known then as Hallamus. Hallow means holy or saintly. So the translation is roughly Mass of the Saints. The night before, October 31st, was All Hallows' Eve, which gradually morphed into Halloween. The holiday came to America with the wave of Irish immigrants during the potato famine of the 1840s. They brought several of their holiday customs with them, including bobbing for apples and playing tricks on neighbors, like removing gates from the front of houses the young pranksters wore masks so they wouldn't be recognized. But over the years, the tradition of harmless tricks grew into outright vandalism. Back in the 1930s, it really became a dangerous uh, holiday. I mean, there was um, such uh, hooliganism and vandalism. Trick-or-treating was originally a extortion deal. Give us candy or we'll... Uh, trash your house. Storekeepers and neighbors began giving treats or bribes to stop the tricks, and children were encouraged to travel door to door for treats as an alternative to troublemaking. By the late 30s, trick or treat became the holiday greeting. Just a little history of the Halloween holiday. You know, one of my favorite things about Halloween, one of my favorite things in general are scary movies, scary stories, and one of the best sources for scary stories growing up was a book by Alvin Schwartz called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. The illustrations were really actually the, terrifying. Uh, I actually just found a copy of that book in the Strand bookstore in uh, Manhattan, and I was very dismayed to see that the illustrations had been replaced 
with new ones that are very, very tame and lame and not the same. What a bad game. Anyway, that was unfortunate. But as I was rereading some of these stories, it's funny because when you read them, some of them are pretty crazy. And I remember that not just the illustrations, but what made them so scary was actually an audio tape I had of someone reading them. His delivery. His delivery is what made them so scary. Makes all the difference, folks. In fact, here's a scary story called The Big Toe. Just listening to it, actually, I'm in, it's kind of funny to say this. As I was putting uh, content together for the show tonight and I went back and tried to find these clips... Listening to this story alone in my dark apartment, I got a little nervous. I was a little creeped out. I'm not going to lie. Here you go. The Big Toe. A boy was digging at the edge of the garden when he saw a big toe. He tried to pick it up, but it was stuck to something. So he gave it a good hard jerk and it came off in his hand. Then he heard something groan and scamper away. The boy took the toe into the kitchen and showed it to his mother. It looks nice and plump, she said. I'll put it in the soup and we'll have it for supper. That night, his father carved the toe into three pieces and they each had a piece. Then they did the dishes and when it got dark, they went to bed. The boy fell asleep almost at once, but in the middle of the night, a sound awakened him. It was something out in the street. It was a voice, and it was calling to him. Where is my toe? It groaned. When the boy heard that, he got very scared, but he thought... It doesn't know where I am. It will never find me. Then he heard the voice once more. Only now it was closer. Where is my toe? It groaned. The boy pulled the blankets over his head and closed his eyes. I'll go to sleep, he thought. When I wake up, it will be gone. But soon he heard the back door. And again he heard the voice. Where is my toe? It groaned. Then the boy heard footsteps move through the kitchen, into the dining room, into the living room, into the front hall. Then slowly they climbed the stairs. Closer and closer they came. Soon... They were in the upstairs hall. Now they were outside his door. Where is my toe? The voice groaned. His door opened. Shaking with fear, he listened as the footsteps slowly moved through the dark toward his bed. Then they stopped. voice groaned. You've got it! Holy God! Now, think about this. 
the big toe. First of all, let's let's just recap. Okay, so they see a toe out in the garden. They grab the toe. Are they growing toes in their garden? What the fuck? They grab the toe, hear a groan, and scampering away. It looks nice and plump, says the mother. We'll cook it for dinner. What the fuck's wrong with these people? These thoughts are ones that never crossed my mind as a child. I don't know why. But again, absurd and not even that scary on the face, on the surface. But that reading, that presentation, that spooking. Yes, it's so effective. And I have to say, that book was, that reading was an actor named George S. Irving. He was very famous for his work on the Broadway. He just died in December of last year at the age of 94, for God's sakes. And I'm also happy to say that Alvin Schwartz, the author of these books and these stories, there's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, is actually a series of three books, all written by Alvin Schwartz, who is a Brooklyn native. So, hooray for us. But as I was saying, um, so the original illustrations were by Stephen Gamble, who is still alive. And it was actually... In 2011, the book's 30th anniversary, HarperCollins re-released the books with new illustrations from Brett Helquist, who's the illustrator of a series of unfortunate events. Now, I was not the only one who thought this was really a bad idea, because like I said, you take away those awesome, scary illustrations, you've never heard George S. Irving reading the stories, and you've got some pretty vanilla, dumbass stories. And I wasn't the only one who felt that way. Apparently, it came under very severe criticism from fans of Gamble's illustrations, and they all said the same thing. The new illustrations weren't nearly as effective or as scary as the originals. So, HarperCollins, you fucked up, and you are fucked up. Anywho, now, I have to say, though, one thing about stories like that, they're fun, they're spooky, whatever. The presentation is all that matters. But... It's missing something, obviously, and that's, for me, they're not true. And I don't know why I have a problem with that. It's like when I read, I don't really read nonfiction for some reason. And, you know, I love scary movies. I know those aren't all true. Most of them aren't true. But for some reason, when it comes to books and literature, I prefer true stories. So that's why when it comes to stuff like scary stories or paranormal experiences, I'm always much more enamored by stories that are actual events, true stories, first-hand accounts. And in gathering content for this Halloween episode of The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn, I spoke to some friends of mine, and some of them had some pretty interesting experiences. In fact, this is a story told by my friend Brandon. You know, when I do that call-in plug where it's how about you, Brandon? Would it make your day? I don't really care. People always ask me about that. They say, who's Brandon? Whose voice is that? Well, here's Brandon. You'll hear much more of his voice. Here's him telling a story about one of his paranormal experiences. John, I've had a lot of interesting paranormal encounters in my life, but I'd like to tell you one of my favorite stories, and this is The House Where I Grew Up. When I was a kid, 
we grew up in this house that had sort of an archway that separated the living room from the hallway where you would go to the bedrooms. Now, when you walk through that archway and make an immediate left, that was my bedroom right there. Sometimes when I was home, I would walk through that archway and feel this feeling that I can only describe as thick. It's like a very, like the air was thick and it was kind of scary. I mean, I didn't, I lived in this house until I was 12. So this had to be between the ages of like 10 and 12 that I started really noticing this strange feeling every time I walked through that archway, pretty much. So one night I was sleeping in my bedroom and I woke up because I had to pee like you do. When I woke up, I opened my eyes and there was like a letter floating in the air in front of me. And it was all golden and like written like on papyrus, like it was the constitution, like this old letter. And I, I like rubbed my eyes, opened them again. And there was an old man standing at the end of my bed. And he was very, very light, very white, very glowy. And the, the letter was kind of golden. And I kind of froze for a second. And then I, well, I jumped out of bed and I ran to the bathroom because I had to pee. Anywho, this feeling with the archway kept going on for a, long, a very long time. And it was sort of validated for me when a friend of my grandmother's came by who happened to be a psychic like your grandmother has friends that are psychics. And she came to our house. Uh, it was like a New Year's Eve. Uh, we stopped by to use the restroom. She had to pee. How weird is that? There's a little correlation in the story I never realized before. Anywho, uh, so she walks into our house. It was me, my mother, and her. She walks into the house and goes, ooh, you have a visitor. She goes into the bathroom, and I just, like, start telling my mom everything about the archway and the old man and everything. And my mom was like, you should ask her about it. And I was like, no, that's, uh, that's weird. And the woman comes out of the bathroom. My mom starts asking her just a couple of, you know, questions like, who is it, et cetera, et cetera. She said it was something that it was like a, a family member, but not someone that was close to us or something like that. And I finally got the courage to ask her, is there like a spot or a place in the house where this visitor likes to be. She kind of gazed around the living room a little bit, looks at the archway, points at the archway, and says, right over there, under that little arch. Ooh, ooh quite a story, am I right? Now... That actually is quite a story because usually, and here's why most people, when they tell you stories, and I heard a few of these as I was trying to gather them, I would ask friends of mine, I'd be like, oh, hey, do you guys have, you know, any, anything that you might consider a supernatural experience? Would you, anything that happened to you it needs to be a firsthand account. It can't be something that happened like to your mom or your sister or whatever. A lot of friends of mine would jump and be like, yes, oh my God, I have so many stories. I'd call them, we'd talk, I'd ask for their story, and they'd say something like, um, yeah, when I was growing up, there was this room that you'd sometimes hear creaks in every now and then. And I was like, yeah, yeah, 
I mean, okay, I, you know, not exactly terrifying or haunted or unexplainable by any means. So, yes, that happened quite a bit. But Brandon's story was pretty, you know, those are some experiences. However, I will full disclosure here. Brandon and I used to host a show together called Our Two Cents. And so we were pretty close, and I'm an asshole, as you're all about to hear. I have to share this with you. This is, to me, hilarious. Right after that story, well, I had some questions for Brandon, and I, you know, hey, I have some questions. I'm a curious person. I'm that asshole who takes someone's story like that and is like, now, wait a minute. How did you, who is it? Are you making this up? I actually say that at one point. I say, are you making this all up? Here's me questioning Brandon after his very interesting story. Enjoy. Now, all right. So, I have some questions. Hello? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right away, you can hear he's like, oh, God, what? He loves it. Yeah. Now, first of all, the, what we, the, the, what, the letter thing. So, you woke up. You had the P. Was the archway in your bedroom? The archway was, was, when you went through the archway, as soon as you made a left, that's where my room was. Okay, so you saw it from, okay. Now, what was what did the letter have to do with, so you saw a ghost, a man ghost, and you're sure you weren't dreaming? Yes, because I did get up in the middle of all of this. Okay, if you didn't hear that, because it does get a little garbled, I said, are you sure you weren't dreaming? He says, yes, I'm sure I wasn't dreaming because I got up to pee in the middle of all of this. Okay, are you sure you went on LSD? How old were you? Uh, I was like nine, so I don't think LSD played into this, unless, of course, I was drugged. Okay, and then the biggest question is, you said, okay, later a psychic came over, and then she went pee. Correlation, I, people pee. But my question is, you hadn't told your mom? You didn't tell anybody? If that happened to me, I would, first of all, I would tell someone right then and there. No, I didn't tell anybody. What? Don't know. Don't act like, yeah, no, no big deal. Why didn't you tell anybody? You didn't think, oh, that's weird, a ghost. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I had no excuse. I, I just never told anybody. So Are you making all this up? <laughs> and that's, where I, <laughs> that's where I just said, are you making all this up? I'm sorry, though. I can't, I can't say that I don't still feel that way. I do still feel... If you're... In, in his defense... A lot of people, well, the few people, friends of mine, who had stories like that where they said, like, you know, I walked up to the attic and there was a man standing there staring at me. I question was, did you run for your fucking life? Did you scream? Did you say, uh, Bobby, come look at this ghost. There's a ghost. Everyone's talking like, no, it was a very peaceful presence. I didn't say anything to anyone ever until now, apparently. That's weird. Is that not weird? Well, he didn't think that was weird at all. So Are you making all this up? What? Stuff like that happens. I mean, it kind of happens a lot, so I don't really... What? It's never happened to me. I wish it had. <laughs> you saw a ghost. Well, that is intense. Yeah. Okay. You, can hear, you hear me kind of back off there at the end, but... He said it kind of happens a lot. No big deal. And uh, what? You see ghosts? Okay, well, when's the last time you had a CAT scan, friend? 
anyway, and I don't mean to make fun of him. I mean, that's a great story if it's true. I just, and here's the thing. So here's my story. And I, the truth of the matter is this, folks. When people ask me if if I've ever seen a ghost or had a paranormal experience, my my innate reaction is to say no, because I I really don't feel like I have. I've never seen a ghost. I've never, I've never had a real direct unquestionable interaction or experience with the paranormal with ghosts. So my innate response is no. But if I had just, if I had to think of something or if there was anything that could possibly have any tinge of the supernatural to it, it would be this story. This is all I got folks. And, and I just say the reason I know I sound like a complete skeptic now, but the reason that is, is because I'm not, the reason I sound so kind of dismissive of this stuff now is because I want so badly to have an experience. I believed for so many years and so long, I truly did believe in all this stuff. And I was so open to it that I so open to it that I almost questioned as to whether or not my experiences were legitimate because I was so open to them that I could have maybe manifested them or been like, you know, when you really want something to happen, you if you're if you go to a haunted house looking for ghosts, every creak you hear, you're going to think, oh, that's my dead sister or something. You're not going to think, oh, these pipes are making noise ever. So I don't know. Here's my story. My story involves the Stanley Hotel. Now, the Stanley Hotel is a beautiful, historic hotel, old, very old. It was, um, I believe it was built by the man who created the Stanley Steamer. Tough under channel on carpet. And very old. It's in Estes Park, Colorado. Well, I was on, this was in the summer of 2009. One of my very close friends and I decided to take a cross-country road trip in between the spring semester and the start of the summer session. And so we went all over the place. We started in, in Indiana. That's where we lived. We went down to Dallas to see the Dealey Plaza and Texas School Book Depository, all the things related to the JFK assassination. We drove up through Oklahoma City. We saw the most beautiful memorial I've ever seen. The Oklahoma City bombing memorial, where the former Murrah building used to stand, is so gorgeous, so well put together and amazing. You should see it if you haven't. And we went all over, Grand Canyon, L.A., blah, blah, blah. So here's my story of how we got to Estes Park and the Stanley Hotel. It's kind of funny because we had been, like I said, it was a cross-country road trip. So we were spending literally maybe a couple hours, perhaps overnight, no more than that, in each stop. So we were driving to Estes Park from, get this, San Francisco, huge distance. And we drove there straight through. We left San Francisco around 4.45 in the morning. And we got to Estes Park, Colorado, the Stanley Hotel around 4 15 or so in the morning the next day yeah straight through and there's a i think there's a yeah there's a time change but not much so we get there around i mean virtually in the middle of the night and we're scheduled for a one night stay i can't remember the exact date but let's just say for argument's sake it was june 8th we had booked a night stay from june 8th to june 9th well, we arrived at 4.20 a.m. on June 8th. And 
we go in and we're like, hi, we're here. Can we check in? Well, apparently hotels have check-in times and check-out times. We were unaware. Now, keep in mind, we were very young at this time. We were like, well, we weren't that young. Okay, so I was probably like 21 or 22. How stupid were we to think that we could walk in at 4 a.m. and check in? Well, maybe it was the delirium from being up for 24 hours. How stupid and dangerous, by the way, to drive straight through like that. I could have killed us. But anyway, we walked in and asked to check in in the middle of the night. But the Stanley, the woman, the receptionist, the woman who was who happened to be at the desk at that hour. Being as, you know, accommodating and beautiful as they are, did bend the rules and let us stay in. Let us check in, which was truly so nice of them because they didn't have to. This, thing, this is a really you. I mean. You should look it up because this is not your typical holiday. It's a huge, beautiful, lovely hotel. And we pretty much got a night there for free because we checked in at 4.20 a.m. on June 8th, slept, and then had all of June 8th. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah, so that was kind of a lucky on our part. But here's the ghost or the ghostly part, possibly. So we, when we get there at 4.20 in the morning, the woman says, I think we asked for a rollout bed because our bed only had one. And she said, well, you know, all of our maintenance people are obviously, you know, shut down for the night. So we won't be able to get a maintenance bed up there until tomorrow. You know, obviously we were really pissed. And now, no, I'm just kidding. Obviously it was like, oh, no problem. Uh, thank you anyway. We'll just get it tomorrow. So we go to our room, which was in a separate because because this is so old, it, the hotel is built in a way that there's the main quarters, there's like the servants' quarters, the guest quarters, the secondary citizens' quarters, whatever. So we're in a separate little building from the huge main hotel. Um, it's still beautiful, it's still great, but it's separate. So we go to our building, go up a few flights to our room, check in. It's so gorgeous. The bed's so comfortable. Everything's so beautiful. I decide before we hit the hay, I'm going to go grab some ice. I open the door, and this is maybe after being in the room for maybe 20 or 5 minutes or so. I open the door, and out right outside the, right outside of our room is a rollaway bed. Weird. Now, here's the thing. Not only did she say that, that no one was going to bring one, but no one even knew we were there. We hadn't worked, we hadn't called anyone besides you know her. We didn't even, we hadn't really even asked for one. I think it was just on our reservation. Um, so it wasn't there when we walked in the room. We hadn't called anyone looking for it. And not only that, but like I said, we were in a separate building. I mean, it would have taken someone a while to go fetch it, roll it out from one building to the other, get it up the flights of stairs, and then why would they have left it without even knocking? So isn't weird? I mean, because part of what they say who haunts this place is, you know, kind of uh, old hotel workers from centuries past. So one can't help but wonder, was, you know, someone looking to make our stay even more enjoyable that night? So that was me telling my story to Brandon. And, you know, that... Okay, it is weird. It is weird because I was... We really had only been in our room for 15, 20 minutes tops. 
And we would have, I mean, who's going to bring the bed over at that time and not knock? It doesn't make any sense. Plus, we would have heard them. We would have heard them. This is an old hotel. We would have heard them getting on and off the elevator. We would have heard them rolling it to our door. We would have heard them. So I don't know. But, you know, of course, that could be written off as, you know, obviously, that's no ghost. Someone brought you the freaking bed. Big deal. There's your explanation. And maybe, maybe so. But that's, that's the closest thing I got. Now, Brandon... I, w- I did ask him, I was like, how does that sound to you? Does that sound like a real experience? And he was like, of course it does. I mean, he was like, that sounds totally creepy, totally supernatural, like a real firsthand experience. And, you know, and I kind of questioned, I was like, well, unlike you, I didn't see a ghost. It would have been great. To- it would have been great if I had, if I had gone out to get some ice, saw the rollaway bed and a ghostly purse hotel worker walking away going, have a good night. Well, then that would have been a real, indisputable experience. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. I don't know. What do you think? Does that sound like a real experience to you? It's, uh, I don't know, up for debate, but it's all I got, folks. It's all I got. Now, here's another scary story to tell in the dark. I want to make it very clear here. This is not true. This did not happen. This is fiction, okay? We like fiction here. Happy Halloween. It's called Cold as Clay. A farmer had a daughter for whom he cared more than anything on earth. She fell in love with a farmhand named Jim. But the farmer did not think Jim was good enough for his daughter. To keep them apart, he sent her to live with her uncle on the other side of the county. Soon after she left, Jim got sick, and he wasted away and died. Everyone said he died of a broken heart. The farmer felt so guilty about Jim's death. He could not tell his daughter what had happened. She continued to think about Jim and the life they might have had together. One night, many weeks later, there was a knock on her uncle's door. When the girl opened the door, Jim was standing there. Your father asked me to get you, he said. she asked. I don't know, he said. She packed a few things and they left. She rode behind him, clinging to his waist. Soon he complained of a headache. It aches something terrible, he told her. She put her hand on his forehead. Why, you're as cold as clay, she said. I hope you're not ill. And she wrapped her handkerchief around his head. They traveled so swiftly that in a few hours they reached the farm. The girl quickly dismounted and knocked on the door. Her father was startled to see her. Didn't you send for me, she asked. No, I didn't, he said. She turned to Jim, but he was gone. And so was the horse. They went to the stable to look for them. The horse was there. It was covered with sweat and trembling with fear. But there was no sign of Jim. Terrified, her father told her the truth about Jim's death. Then quickly he went to see Jim's parents. They decided to open his grave. The corpse was in its coffin, but around its head they found the girl's handkerchief. Now, 
Now that is an experience. You're listening to The Next Best Thing right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is the Halloween episode, and we're going to be right back. Until we get back, enjoy a song from one of my favorite Halloween movies of all time, starring Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, Kathy and Jimmy. I'm talking, of course, about Hocus Pocus. I put a spell on you. And now you're mine. <laughs> you can't stop the things I do. I love. No! No! In 300 years, right down to the day, now the witch is back. And there's hell to pay. I put a spell on you. Good joke. Happy Halloween. Thanks a lot. No, man. I'm serious. Yeah, yeah. You better get Yeah, yeah. You're kidding. You're having fun. Yeah, here. Let's go, guys. Hello, hello. My name's Winifred. What's yours? I put a spell on you. This is the next best thing. Don't go. Okay, how about another story, shall we? This is another true one, not from me, but from good old Brandon. This had to be maybe five years ago or so, uh, four or five years ago when I lived on the Lower East Side. And there was one night I couldn't sleep. Like for the life of me, I just could not sleep. And uh, I was sort of facing the wall in my bed, just like, you know, talking to myself, trying to get myself to go to sleep. As I was just about to fall asleep, you know that thing where you shake awake? Yeah. I just shook awake, and I could feel something behind me. You shake awake. Remember, I'm sleeping. I'm trying to sleep facing the wall. And I could feel, like, the hairs on the back of my neck starting to stand up kind of stuff, you know. And I didn't want to turn around. I didn't want to turn around. I didn't want to turn around. And finally, I, because now I was not going, I was not getting to sleep at this point. Finally, I turn over and this, like all, it was like all of the, whatever little tiny bit of light was shining through the window or whatever into my room. It was very dark, but whatever light was in my room sort of, world and like conspired together to create what I'm going to just call an apparition because it didn't like make a person 
necessarily, but it was like a, like a ghostly figure, like, like a stereotypical sort of ghostly figure. And I screamed. I screamed really loud twice. I screamed twice. And my roommate never heard me screaming. We lived in the smallest apartment ever. She could hear me breathing, but she did not hear me screaming that night. He's deaf. I mean, you're not a ghost. You screamed, <laughs> right? So that, yeah, I totally screamed, and I, you know, that's the first time I ever really had a, a scary reaction to ghosts. Brandon has so much better stories than me. I don't know what it is. Maybe I want to see a freaking ghost. Do you like how I came in there at the end once again to question his story? I'm such an asshole. Anyway, friends, great friends, right? That's what friends are for. All right, so anyway, here's another true story. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, one of my favorite shows ever was Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. If you or anyone you know has information regarding this missing woman, call us at 1-800-876-5353. That is the call-in number that they used to put up on the screen on Unsolved Mysteries. And hell, I don't know if you, I actually think I may have called it like in my senior year of high school or something. Well, or maybe even in college, years after it was taken off the air and it was still like, thanks for calling the Unsolved Mysteries hotline. If you have any information regarding anybody, please let us know. Okay, thank you. the best it's just the best anyway the reason we're uh, referring to unsolved mysteries is because they sometimes instead of just having crimes that had gone unsolved and murders that had gone unsolved they would every now and then have a very unusual unexplainable paranormal story to tell and this was back in the 70s 80s so how stre- how far did they stretch the truth for television? Who knows? But I this story in particular has always stood out to me as a very interesting case. It's one of my favorites, and it comes from an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, and the story is called The Lady in Black. Good fortune can quickly turn bad. Swift as thunderclouds can sweep a summer sky. No one knows this better than Robert Davidson. In June of 1980, Davidson was barreling down I-74 near Acton, Indiana. As a rainstorm whipped up around him, Davidson's luck suddenly changed for the worse. When you're driving 60, 65 mile an hour on a motorcycle and when raindrops hit you, it's really pretty stingy. It hurts. And I thought, better pull over and get my rain jacket out of the trunk. Had one foot on the ground, and that's the last thing I can remember. It was a direct hit. More than 200,000 volts of electricity. 38-year-old Robert Davison should have died right then and there. Yet Davison is still very much with us today at the age of 54. Some say his survival was just another shift in the winds of fortune. Nothing more than a stroke of luck. 
But others, including Davison himself, called it a miracle, personally delivered by a messenger of God. Within minutes of the lightning strike, emergency crews were on the scene. From the start, it appeared their efforts would be in vain. Clinically, he should have been dead by the color of his skin. And when we arrived, there was no blood pressure, no pulse. Basically, he had no chance at all. Hey, Thelma, I'm going to need a chopper in here right away. This guy's in bad According shape. to several witnesses, events at the scene suddenly swerved towards a supernatural. First, every power circuit in the ambulance inexplicably failed. All right, 10-4. The engine shut down, the lights turned off, and it was without power completely. We got dual batteries. Uh, one battery would go down, the other one would take over. And uh, there's no way they could have both gone down at the same time. It was an eerie feeling. I mean, you could just, it felt strange. And as they were doing the CPR, you heard this woman coming up yelling, I need to touch him, I need to touch him, just let me touch him. I must touch him. I must touch him. Nobody knew her name or where she came from. Later they would refer to her reverently as the Lady in Black. She just kept again and again and again, you know, I can save his life. And of course, you know, at that point in time, I kind of thought, well, maybe this is just uh, one of the people, so to speak, left over from the 70s, you know. <laughs> but I said, you know, let her do what she needs to do. You know, what can it hurt? my shepherd I shall not want he maketh me to lie down in green pastures he leadeth me beside the still waters he leadeth me in the name of righteousness for his name she was dressed in the late 1800 dress your basic black dress very very old-fashioned she had the old-fashioned black shoes that went with it and carried her little black Bible then uh, she raised the Bible to the sky and started speaking in tongue uh, which um, was something I didn't understand, but I'm sure somebody out there did. You could just feel uh, all the time that she was saying this, just chills from head to toe. I mean, it was like just this tremendous amount of energy. When she was finished, she looked at me, smiled, and got up and walked away. Probably five seconds had passed by, and I turned to look the direction where she had left, and there was nobody to be found. Accounts from that day couldn't be more contradictory. Some eyewitnesses, including two of the paramedics, insist that the mysterious woman was never there. I don't know why they couldn't see her, really, because it was plain as day to me, it was plain as day to Randy. You know, why couldn't anyone else see her or hear her? There is no doubt in my mind that she was there. I believe there was a power that actually shut the vehicle down, a surge which just obliterated the vehicle's power supply and shut it down when this woman walked by. According to those who saw the lady in black, her departure triggered another chain of uncanny events. First, the ambulance came back to life. Then... I've got it. I've got a pulse. It almost burst my eardrums, but it was a welcome to hear that first heartbeat. And I yelled again, 
I think everybody could have heard me down the interstate because I was so happy that we was getting some vital signs. Davison had a heartbeat, but his life was still hanging by a thread. The ER physician was not optimistic. My prognosis was that he would not come out of his coma. And I expected him to remain in permanent coma and ultimately uh, suffer complications and ultimately die. For nearly two months, Robert Davison was more dead than alive. Then one day he simply woke up and resumed his life. When I came out of the coma, I looked around and I couldn't figure out what I was doing in the hospital because I had no memory of anything happening to me that would put me in the hospital. When it became apparent that uh, he Sweet indeed woke up and uh, not only woke too? up but was talking and walking, uh, it, uh, I was utterly amazed. Davidson's astounding recovery has prompted speculation that the woman in black was far more than a simple passerby. Some believe her to be a divine spirit that rose up from Indiana's fervid religious past. Just down the road from where Davidson was struck by lightning lies this quiet meadow. It is a site of a 19th century spiritual retreat known as Acton Campground. More than a hundred years ago, this spot rang out with fiery sermons, gospel hymns, and the strange music of the faithful speaking in tongues. Most of Acton Campground burned down in 1905, but a few artifacts can still be found at a local museum. There among the relics of a long-vanished era is a vintage dress unmistakably reminiscent of the Lady in Black. I, uh believe that this woman maybe had been a pastor, a reverend, or a priestess, or whatever in her life prior. And when she passed on, she was brought into, I guess, a guardian angel form. I know I witnessed a miracle. I, there's just no other words to say it. It was a miracle. Many will argue that Robert Davidson's life was saved by quick treatment and a measure of good luck. But others believe just as firmly that the spirits of Acton Campground were awakened and that one of them came to Davidson's rescue. I've always kind of believed in angels, that everybody has a guardian angel. But most people never get to see him or have him really do anything for him. I think my angel was doing her job that day. Mo, he believes in guardian angels, but people never get to see them or have them do anything for them. Really? Well, then what the hell is the point? Anyway, that story is pretty compelling. Really? I Like, why? It's crazy to me that some of the people who were there that day claimed to have not seen any of this. What were they doing while it was happening? Really, think about it. Let's say you have a group of 10 paramedics. Five of them can see this lady in black and the other five can't. Well, then what are they, what are those people, think about what's happening while she's there. 
are the people who see her saying like, what's this lady doing? What a psycho. And the other people are like, what are these guys talking about? There's no lady here. Have them committed. Those are the questions that I have. But regardless, that's a pretty compelling story. Very, I mean, interesting. And, you know, obviously when you want to be very careful when you hear things like that on television, when you hear anything on television, because we all know they stretch the truth. Of course they do to make things more interesting and dramatic. But this was back in the day, folks. This was not in our current reality show mania climate that we have here. This was before they got into that. And so who knows, maybe they were a little more honest back in the day. Anyway, Here's a treat, a special Halloween treat for you, everyone in New York City. If you are into the supernatural, if you believe in the ghostly entities, well, then you will be very interested to hear this. These are the 10 most haunted places in New York City for you to check out and see for yourself. New Yorkers aren't shy when it comes to talking about their run-ins with the afterlife in the city. How, how would this guy know? He clearly sounds like he's from Britain. Many locals claim ghosts haunt NYC's old buildings and parks. Parks. Some are less quietly than others. John Lennon is said to haunt the Dakota, where he was murdered. While Nancy Spungen Sid Vicious's girlfriend is rumored to be spending the afterlife at the Chelsea Hotel. Today, we consider the 10 most haunted places of New York City. For what it's worth, I'm pretty sure the Chelsea Hotel no longer exists. Just like a Londoner to not know what the fuck he's talking about. The Morris Jumel Mansion. One of the oldest houses in Manhattan, this stately Georgian mansion in Washington Heights was built by Roger Morris, a colonel in the British Army in 1765. It served as military headquarters for both sides of the revolution, with George Washington retreating here after the disastrous loss of the Battle of Brooklyn in 1776. In 1810, the house was bought by Stephen Jamel and his wife, Eliza. After his suspicious death, she remarried in 1832 to Aaron Burr, the former vice president and the killer of Alexander Hamilton. Since the 1960s, Rumors of the supernatural have persisted when a group of... Since the 19... Oh, maybe I should just listen and shut up. ...schoolchildren allegedly saw the ghostly visage of Eliza Jumel, who told them to quiet down before gliding away. That is absolutely <laughs> something that my ghost would do. Just come back to Earth to tell some kids to shut the hell up. Okay, bye. The Dakota Building. The Dakota is renowned 
for its scene-stealing role in Roman Polanski's 1968 horror classic, Rosemary's Baby, and as the site of John Lennon's assassination. However, this legendary Central Park West building has a long history of supernatural encounters in its own right. Over the years, workers and residents have reported seeing a friendly little girl dressed in turn-of-the-century clothing, an adult with the face of a small boy, and even the ghost of Lennon himself. The Campbell Apartment The Campbell Apartment was once the office and salon of financier John W. Campbell, who died in 1957. According to current owner Mark Grosich, employees have felt strange presences, including something pushing them from behind and bursts of cold air. And some have even reported seeing an old, fashionably dressed couple sitting and having a cocktail on the balcony when the place was completely closed. The House of Death. This beautiful townhouse. The House of Death? It's actually called that? He's talking about a house located at 14 West 10th Street in case you want to check it out. ...has been called the most haunted building in New York City, with as many as 22 ghosts calling it home. Earning 14 West 10th Street, the title, The House of Death. Mark Twain lived here from 1900 to 1901 and claimed that he himself experienced supernatural incidents. Throughout the 20th century, this was the site of several gruesome incidents, including a murder-suicide and the beating to death of six-year-old Lisa Steinberg. The spectre of Twain himself has been seen ascending the staircase on many occasions. St. Mark's Church in the Bowery. St. Mark's Church in the Bowery is the second oldest church in Manhattan, splitting from Trinity Church in 1799. Built on Dutch colonial Governor Peter Stuyvesant's family farm, legend has it that the cantankerous peg-legged Dutchman still haunts the area. He has been known to harass clergymen and parishioners, ring the bells, and loudly interrupt services by stomping around and singing Calvinist hymns in Dutch. Apparently, English Episcopal hymns simply don't agree with him. The Merchant's House Well, some haunted houses might try to lose their notorious reputations. The East Village's Merchant's House Museum does not. Built in 1832 and later bought by wealthy merchant Seabury Treadwell, the museum is an immaculate look into the personal, domestic lives of the 19th century cultural elite. Although, the ghost of Treadwell's daughter 
still haunts the place. The Manhattan Well. In the winter of 1800, the body of a young woman named Julielma Sands was found at the bottom of the Manhattan Well at what is now 129 Spring Street. The ensuing trial was one of the great scandals of 19th century New York, with Levi Weeks accused of her murder after he reportedly impregnated and promised to marry her. Weeks retained the city's top attorneys and was acquitted, despite growing public outrage. In 1817, the Manhattan Well was filled in and built over, but it was rediscovered in 1980 and has since become a notorious destination for paranormal enthusiasts, claiming that the ghost of Julie Elmer Sands still haunts the area. The Conference House. Located at the southernmost tip of Staten Island, this colonial manor was used by loyalist Colonel Let's be real, no one's going to Staten Island, not even the craziest of supernatural enthusiasts. Not happening. Christopher Billop as a way station for British forces during the Revolutionary War. It also hosted the unsuccessful Staten Island Peace Conference on September 11th, 1776, with Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Edward Rutledge in attendance. In 1779, Billop suspected a 15-year-old serving girl of spying for the rebels and allegedly killed her by throwing her down a flight of stairs. Supposedly, her ghost can still be heard screaming today. What's more, the area was also used as a Lenape Indian burial ground for thousands of years before European contact. The Lefferts Laidlaw House. In Wallabout, an 1840 Greek revival home, a stone throw away from the Brooklyn Navy Yard, there may be a sinister secret. One December evening in 1878, resident Edward F. Smith reported hearing a knock at his door. But when he went to answer, there was no one to be found. The knocking persisted, while the back doors and windows were violently rattled and banged. The unseen tormentor continued harassing Smith until he called the police. While the cops staked the area out, someone, or something, hurled a brick through the dining room window, despite the fact that multiple officers were standing right outside. 85 West 3rd Street. Now part of New York University's Furman Hall. 85 West 3rd Street was once occupied by Edgar Allan Poe for eight months in 1844 and 1845. This was when he wrote his classic story, The Cask of Amontillado, and at least part of The Raven. 
nowadays, the only part of the original residence that remains is the banister, and Poe's ghost has been seen climbing it by spooked law students. There you have it, folks. The ten most haunted places in New York City. Supposedly, and I don't know according to who, except for that British guy who you heard speaking. For all of you supernatural enthusiasts out there, go to the locations, check them out yourselves. I will say this, I did a short film, and one of the one day of shooting took place in that church on St. Mark's Street, and it was pretty creepy, but I don't recall actually seeing a peg-legged ghost wandering the premises. But he could have been there. I don't know. Oh, God. All right, we're almost out of time on this All Hallows' Eve. But before we go, I would like to share one more scary story to tell in the dark. These, once again, are written by Alvin Schwartz and read by the great, the late great, George S. Irving. High beams. The girl driving the old blue sedan was a senior at the high school. She lived on a farm about eight miles away and used the car to drive back and forth. She had driven into town that night to see a basketball game. Now she was on her way home. As she pulled away from the school, she noticed a red pickup truck follow her out of the parking lot. A few minutes later... The truck was still behind her. Hmm, I guess we're going in the same direction, she thought. She began to watch the truck in her mirror. When she changed her speed, the driver in the truck changed his speed. When she passed the car, so did he. Then he turned on his high beams, flooding her car with light. He left them on for almost a minute. He probably wants to pass me, she thought. But she was becoming uneasy. Usually, she drove home over a back road. Not too many people went that way. But when she turned onto that road, so did the truck. I've got to get away from him, she thought. And she began to drive faster. Then he turned his high beams on again. After a minute, he turned them off. Then he turned them on again and off again. She drove even faster, but the truck driver stayed right behind her. Then he turned his high beams on again. Once more, her car was ablaze with light. What is he doing, she wondered. What does he want? Then he turned them off again. But a minute later, he had them on again, and he left them on. At last, she pulled into her driveway, and the truck pulled in right behind her. She jumped from the car and ran to the house. Call the police, she screamed at her father. Out in the driveway, she could see the driver of the truck. He had a gun in his hand. When the police arrived, they started to arrest him, but he pointed to the girl's car. You don't want me, he said. You want him. Crouched behind the driver's seat, there was a man with a knife. As the driver of the truck explained it, the man slipped into the girl's car just before she left the school. 
He saw it happen, but there was no way he could stop it. He thought about getting the police, but he was afraid to leave her. So he followed her car. Each time the man in the back seat reached up to overpower her, the driver of the truck turned on his high beams. Then the man dropped down, afraid that someone might see him. Ooh, that's kind of, I think that's kind of a folklore, very famous story, myth, that and the hook. You probably know what I'm talking about. We don't have time to play it now. I hope everyone's enjoyed this Halloween edition of The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. That's just about all the time we have. Uh, and remember, folks, more than anything, and this is important, I say it all the time, I'm going to say it again, Apathy is the enemy. More than Michael Myers, more than every ghost in the world, apathy is the true enemy. Stay informed. Watch the news. Read the paper. Have an opinion. Know what's going on. Care about it. Take some action and maybe make a change. For Radio Free Brooklyn, this has been The Next Best Thing. I'm Jonathan B. Lerner. Stay scared, folks. Stay very scared. And of course... Happy Halloween! <laughs>